A South Dakota leader is named a national changemaker. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, August 18th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Tasha Friday is with us. She is a new Obama Foundation United States leader. We'll get to know her and the work she has underway. The Northern Innovation and Startup Center seeks to transform Aberdeen into a tech startup ecosystem. CJ Keene talks with the new director, B. Smith. The artists convene for an annual arts event in Sioux Falls. We'll preview that. Plus, Fresh Tracks explores the psychedelic era and the future of AM radio. That's coming up a bit later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from the Black Hill Studios in the heart of Rapid City. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. In early July, Jason Solomon formally stepped into his new role as mayor of Rapid City. Today, I'm excited to welcome him to In the Moment and introduce him to the rest of South Dakota as well. We are seated here in SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio, right in the heart of Rapid City. Um, Mayor Solomon, welcome. How's that sounding to you? It Everybody's, takes getting yeah. used to, yeah. <laughs> I have to get I, used to I'm saying I'm impressed it. that yeah. you said my last name correctly. Because most people say it wrong. It keeps me humble. I have producers who gave me an announce, an, a, a pronouncer so that I, I am selfishly supported by wonderful people, as you are too. Tell yes, me I a am. little bit about the importance of having a team and what are you finding about the city offices as you transition into this role to say, um, I, I'm the new guy here. Yeah. You know, uh, it helps that I was on the council for six years, so I, I at least built some relationships. But I, w- I will say... Uh, there is no way a mayor or anybody could do this job alone, obviously. Uh, you're talking about leading an entire city operation, and so it takes talented people around you. Uh, I will say that the city is very blessed in Rapid City to have such talent uh, available. So whether it's the mayor's office or my department directors or people filling potholes to everything, it is amazing the sheer amount of people that serve the city and it's very humbling to see uh to know that you're in charge of that and you want to steward that well as a leader outgoing mayor steve allender left you a couple pieces of advice and one of them was get used to the fact that you are serving the people that you you know shop at safeway with or that you're getting your gas at the gas station with um that you're in church with on on sunday morning um have you already noticed that people are recognizing you and coming up and talking to you and telling you what they want you to know about Rapid City, not just in general, but like at this time, at this moment. Yeah. uh, Not a day goes by that I'm not out in public and I get stopped. And sometimes it's encouragement, you know, which is always great. A lot of times it's a specific issue, you know, and I'm not the best person to fix your exact issue, but what I can do is, you know, take it to the people who can, who can do something about it. But uh, no doubt about it, folks, this was a a highly competitive race. So a lot of folks mm-hmm. had eyeballs on it. So it made the visibility strong. So, and I kind of stand out like a sore thumb. I'm six, four, you know, with a beard and, and look like a linebacker, what I'm told. So, um, I try not to act like one, but you know, but you're I, easy to spot. I'm easy yeah. to spot. You Can't don't hide. need a hat that says mayor for them oh, to no, find you. Yeah. No, no. But my wife and I've been out to dinner many times. Um, because we're empty nesters and we do that. Yeah. So when we're out, uh, folks will stop and, and chat. All right. Some of your big initiatives. What did you run on and what are you seeing that um, you feel um, 
that you can get some traction on early, not only because of the campaign, but mm -hmm. because of the situation that you're stepping into? Well, you know, it's interesting. You're elected in the ninth inning of a budget process, so you're immediately trying to tweak that budget. Um, you're not going to change everything in it, but you're tweaking it to align with the priorities that the people put you in for. And so one of the biggest ones that I ran on was public safety. And uh, that encompasses a lot where we the, the real message is everybody's welcome in Rapid City, but crime is not. And so that has been a big priority. So we are looking at initiatives to increase patrols uh, downtown and throughout the city. We've been down a year ago, 34 police officers. As the year went on, we were down 20 and we're getting making progress now. So we had to increase our pay and retention package for our police officers. We had neighboring communities that had starting pay better than we did for a sworn officer. So those are things that we've had to make adjustments on. We're gonna continue that. Also looking at other programs uh, to help relieve pressure off our police department. Uh, one of those is a city park ranger program, which folks have started to ask about, but I'm, I'm putting that as my recommendation in the budget to the council, and we'll see where it goes from there. So let's talk a little bit more about this, because I think okay. you've thought deeply about it from multiple sides. Um, we recently did a, a segment with the South Dakota Advisory Committee for U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, mm -hmm. looking at voting rights and what keeps people away from the polls. And one of the things that they learned was for Native American populations, sending police officers to the polls on voting day could be seen as um, an obstacle versus a, we're trying to make you more safe. So they were suggesting that you really consider carefully what police presence means to different communities. Okay. So police presence is there to protect everyone, Correct. but it also signals something different to different communities who have had historic mistrust. As you move into this space and try to solve problems with you know, being a deterrent, um, elevating the professionalism of a department, keeping them safe, but then also understanding that not everyone sees increased patrols the same way. Mm -hmm. Tell us your philosophy well, then. Uh, for me, it is more about more about it's certainly a deterrent effect on crime in general. It's about behavior. So, for example, we had vandalism in one of our parks. You know, that's that's not necessarily Native American at all. It could be kids. It, we have found big knives and wood chips in our playgrounds. We've had people dealing drugs down by the creek. I'm sorry, but if you're dealing drugs by the creek, I don't care about your feelings. We're going to we're going to take care of that. But we we have 1700 acres of parks and green space in Rapid City. That all of the community can enjoy. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, as long as you're lawful, you should enjoy it. Um, so it's the idea is some of the greatest victims in our park space are also Native Americans. What about their rights? You know, that's the thing is that's where we see some victimization and they also have rights as well. So this is not targeting any people. This is, we have a bike path that runs through the city. I imagine we're gonna pilot this program first, see if it even works in the first place. And if it doesn't, we, you know, we, we start small before we expand the program. And so if it works, then we can go from there. But I think one of the things is that it is not only a sense of safety for everybody, but that it is making it safer because the police can't be everywhere. So the park rangers are not police officers. They're more like game fish and park rangers. They have citation authority. If you have an off-leash dog in the park, you're likely to, to get caught. If you are spray painting things, you're likely to get caught. And yes, if you are 
violent or anything like that in the parks, then hopefully they will have a direct line to law enforcement to make sure that those dangerous situations are dealt with. Talk about growth, because also yeah. with police officers and, and recruitment for, you know, for industry, for, um, you know, every business that you could possibly think of, but also in law enforcement, you need the people to sustain a growing city. Rapid City is, is growing. How do, you, how do you want it to grow? What kind of community do you want to live in? Well, I, that's the right question, Lori. You should do this for a living. <laughs> I think, you know, the big idea is that we should make the most of the opportunities we have, but keep what makes us special. So you think about what, what makes a community special. Our natural resources might be part of that, our, like we just talked about our park systems um, and the beauty that we have here. It also is that you have good, good paying jobs. That's a safe place to raise a family. Uh, those kind of things are important. What we're seeing the challenge of is we're growing, but our, but our, gosh, our unemployment rate's 1.9%, and a healthy amount's 3 to 5%. That's, you you kind of want to brag about it, I understand, but it's actually an impediment, and I'm feeling that on my city budget, by the way, because we that means workforce is more scarce, so you have to pay more for it mm-hmm. uh, for the folks, and that's your best investment. But it also means you're going to have to pay for it. That makes your expenses go up significantly. You can tell I'm in budget season. That's what I'm thinking about. But <laughs> um, but that's what you want. You want opportunity for everybody because we chose to move back here after my military service because we wanted to raise our family here. For one, I felt like you know I didn't have a big paying job for a long time. But you know initially, I just wanted to be a place where I could raise my family. It was safe. Felt like that was a good fit for us. Two, we could afford to live here, which, you know, with housing and everything else, there's an affordability challenge that I could get a good job if I worked hard and uh, perhaps got the right education or experience. And Mm -hmm. so uh, for us, it was starting all over. But we had family here. You know, we had my parents. And um, and from there, we were able, you know, to build a life. And I want that for everybody. I want people to say, I want to move here to raise our family. And because we, we agree with what's what this place is about, that it's beautiful and awesome and special. Uh, and so I have no interest in making us a generic mid-sized city that just looks like everybody else. Um, in fact, why do that? Uh, so when I can learn from other communities. I learn a lot from Sioux Falls. I've had good conversations with the mayor there uh, just in this transition, and it's been really great. Uh, and there's other communities we learn from as well. But uh, at the end of the day, there's no place like Rapid City. And I, I want us to lean into who we are, not try to be, we're not Miami. We're not, we're not even Sioux Falls. We don't have those metro areas. We are a hub in a region for about 200, 250 miles. We are the hub. And it's an incredible place. 3.8 million visitors visited here where we get to live. Yeah. That's awesome. I've been out here all week, and one of the things that I've been trying to do is learn more about Rapid City itself because sometimes because of the nature of my work, I come out, I come from the hotel to the studio, I work long days, and then I kind of treat Rapid City as a bedroom community for the Black Hills. Like, I'm out in the hills as soon as I can. And this time I've been like, okay, well, what is Rapid City? What is the character of this city? And it's been fascinating um, getting lost less often. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I have a profound ability to get lost okay. uh, at any given moment, even though, yes, it's not that hard. Um, so, yeah, I like what you said. It's not Sioux Falls. You can't, it's not, you can't compare the two, and it's not a generic uh, mid-sized city. That's yeah. a good vision. We to can go learn forward. from those places, yeah. but we have our own strengths, strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. 
Well, Mayor Solomon, I hope to talk to you a lot in the future. Uh, thanks for stopping by. Thank we you. appreciate your time. Thank you for the invitation, and uh, uh, gosh, God bless all your all your listeners. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm C.J. Keen. Rural entrepreneurs in northeastern South Dakota have a new resource at their fingertips. The Northern Innovation and Startup Center seeks to transform Aberdeen into a tech startup ecosystem. Its new director, B. Smith, joins me from SDPB's Tom and Danielle Amund Foundation Studios at Northern State University. How are you doing today, B? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and it's our first time having you on, so why don't we just start with what are the services of the uh, Innovation and Startup Center? Yeah, so Aberdeen has a long history of entrepreneurial ventures that have turned into major companies that you'll see across the country. Um, So the Startup Center really strives to hone in on that legacy through connecting through the different programming opportunities um, that we offer, which are all free not only to Aberdeen residents, uh, but the surrounding communities as well in northeastern South Dakota. What are the goals that you have for the center? You know, true magic happens when people connect. And our goal is to create a tech startup community here in the Aberdeen area and in northeastern South Dakota, and just to create the community that we want the Aberdeen area to truly be. Who does the center serve? Yeah, so the center, like I said, um, serves not only the Aberdeen community, the surrounding communities, um, northern students, anybody. It's open and free to anybody. And how is it strategic to put this in Aberdeen and on a, on a university campus? Yeah, so um, like I said, Aberdeen has a long history of that entrepreneurial entrepreneurship, and Northern State University is such an asset to the region Um, So with the knowledge um, of Northern, just connecting that to the people that can utilize that information. Like I said, through workshops, through seminars, we'll be hosting incubation and ideation workshops. And all of the programming can be found at northern.edu backslash startup. And we're just about out of time, B, but I have to ask, what are you most excited about for the center in the next few months? Yeah, I'm most excited to just get started. Um, Like I said, just the different programming and lifting up those great ideas um, of business and tech ventures that we have here in the Aberdeen area. B. Smith from the Northern Innovation Startup Center in Aberdeen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, Tasha Friday is part of the first cohort of 100 changemakers partaking in the Obama Foundation's Leaders USA program. The Obama Leaders program is a six-month virtual program, and it seeks to connect and empower leaders across the U.S., Africa, Asia, the Pacific, and Europe. And the program instills leadership values and ideals inspired by the legacy of the Obamas. So Tasha is with me now in our Black Hills Surgical Hospital studios, is rolling up to the mic here. And um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting news and and an exciting opportunity. So happy to share. I'm going to have you scoot up just a little bit more so everybody can hear you in all the corners of the state. Um, How did this how did you hear about this program in the first place? Do you remember the first time you were like, what, what is this? This is a whole new thing. 
Right. So it's very surprising. I get the Obama Foundation kind of listserv email and I, you know, I, I open them and kind of scroll through and I was like, this is amazing. I knew that there had been Obama leaders in Asia and Europe um, and Africa. And this was the first time they were going to have it in the U.S. And I, I read the application and I was like, I think this is something that could benefit me and, and all of the aspects of the work that I do. Yeah. And if it benefits you, it benefits your work, it benefits your community. Um, but it is an, a big ask of you. It's a big commitment for you to sort of level up. How did you overcome any self-doubt that you had or any, you know, why me sort of moments to, to pursue the next opportunity of, for learning? Sure. And, and it, it definitely was a pursuit of, you know, self-personal development. Um, but with that always in mind, what that impact has on my community and the future generations, particularly because I work um, for the future of, of young people and families. Um, I don't think there was any self-doubt necessarily. I, I Maybe a long shot, right? But I, I was happy to at least apply and give it my best effort. And I think when we got the news was kind of when it was very surreal, like this actually happened, that they chose me. Um, and in our first session, they said that President Obama, you know, looked at our bios and, and our applications. And I was like, whoa, this this is for real. So um, it, it was a very surreal and humbling moment. Yeah. So what's next then? What, where are you at in the process of, of learning? Sure. So we are just about a month into the program. And so far, it has actually already been phenomenally life-changing. Um, we have access to executive leadership coaches, which I never thought I needed or would have access to. Um, and that just really expanded a lot of the ways that I think about my own trajectory as a person and a community member and a relative. Um, but also within the sessions, just having the opportunity to exchange with other change makers and be innovative and, and hear about the work that they're doing and trying to apply that to the challenges and opportunities in my own community and own workspace has just been somewhat of, of a relief, but also, you know, there's fellowship and camaraderie in a lot of the experiences that we have because we're similarly situated and the values-driven curriculum really speaks to all of our hearts and spirits. Yeah, so let's talk about that cohort a little bit because once you're in the room, um, it can be overwhelming and humbling, but also just profoundly encouraging to meet some of the people that you're going to be going on this journey with. What kind of work are they doing that, um, and I know you can't share you know, any private information, but what's inspiring you about that cohort and the work they're doing in the world? Sure. I think just the diversity of the work that everyone is doing. So for instance, um, we have a colleague who has started an eyewear company that is, I mean, who knew? I didn't know that most eyewear is created for an Anglo face and Anglo features. And so she is in Hawaii and she's created uh, an eyewear company that speaks to um, the faces of her people and then has a philanthropic arm of that where they give school, um, you know, they pay for school with part of the proceeds. There's another gentleman who is trying to transform the face of the fraternity system in higher education. And that's not something I would have normally thought about in my realm of work, but the, the types of things that he's doing is just really amazing and made me think these fraternal systems have some of the next leaders in them and, and how changing that uh, that um, environment can impact a ripple effect into the future. Wow. That's kind of mind-blowing, two things that I would not have thought of right. either. 
And they're saying the same thing about you. So let's talk about your work uh, that some people would not have thought of. Uh, what is your work in the world right now? What is Friends of the Children? Sure. So I'm the National Director of Tribal Programs for Friends of the Children. We are a youth mentoring model. Um, we start with youth ages four to five with the highest risk factors and lowest protective factors. And we pair them with a paid professional mentor that stays with them through their high school years. So 12 years plus, no matter what. Um, and that early intervention um, and the longevity and consistency of the model has, has been proven. What I am doing is I'm grounding that in indigenous culture. We actually have here um, Friends of the Children Chesapa, which is the shirt that I'm wearing today. So we have a location here in Rapid City and on the Pine Ridge Reservation in Porcupine. Um, and this is the first culturally specific site in the 30 years of Friends of the Children where it's grounded in Lakota culture and life ways. And so we know that this model works. But... What does it look like? How much more effective can it be in Indian country when we are grounding it in our cultural life ways? So are you thinking about it being portable or scalable, or are you thinking about it being more in-depth in the, in the location that it's at? So the great thing about Friends of the Children is that we have over 30 chapters in the United States, and each community, really, we co-create with them from the national level what that looks like for their particular community, and I think that's super important for tribes because they're sovereign nations, right? They have their own government systems, their own structures. And so we really try to be very intentional about honoring that sovereignty. For instance, we um, asked the Oglala Sioux tribe for a resolution of support to bring friends of the children into their homelands, particularly because we're asking for access to the most sacred resource, right? Our children, our future generations. And so really looking at each community is different. We have uh, chapters in LA, we're opening one in the Twin Cities, Houston, and so it really spans the spectrum of a very remote rural to very metropolitan urban, and so that can look very different, and we really want it to be for and by the community, so hiring local local boards, um, and, and they are their own freestanding nonprofits. All right, so is there a cohort, as it were, for Friends of the Children where you can learn from each other and, you know, sort of capitalize on some of the solutions that people have found in a different community, even though some of those solutions might absolutely not work in your community for specific reasons, but some might. So is there a network of, of Friends of the Children leadership that you benefit from? Yeah, so actually more so I am I am from the national organization um, really providing those sorts of opportunities okay, yeah. within the programming space. So we have meetings of our executive directors all over the country. They meet and they talk and discuss challenges and solutions that they're coming up with. Same thing with program directors. Specifically for my work, I provide um, guidance, for lack of a better term, technical assistance and education around tribal engagement um, because a lot of people don't know what they don't know um, and how are we going into community as good relatives to work alongside people that are already doing this great work. Did you have someone for you that you think back as being a mentor or a guide um, that has that changed your life growing up? Is it, did you, how did, did you come to this work with that kind of um, heart in your background? Or was it all a learning experience for you? Were you like, oh, this is a big learning curve. I got to go. Like, tell me a little bit about that. 
No, I think this is definitely in my DNA. Um, you know, not too long ago, someone asked me why a heart for youth work, because everything youth is my heart work. And I really had to be reflective. I was raised by my indigenous grandmother, um, who was a fierce activist, but also worked with youth um, with substance misuse disorders. And I grew up, you know, going around with her in the 80s. I went everywhere with her, and she always called them my kids. And, um, you know, pick them up in vans, pick them up from places that they probably shouldn't have been. And she always showed them great care and love and support. And I think she just modeled that for me and showed me inequities in education. Um, she had a, a ninth grade education. I got to watch her get a GED, a couple of associate's degrees as she stepped her toe in. And then finally, she got a master's degree from the University of Oklahoma. So really got to watch her journey. Um, and she's my greatest mentor. She's in the spirit world now, but she is the greatest mentor and really um, modeled what it is to be a good relative. You watched her go from a GED to a master's degree. I did. That's remarkable. Yeah. It, it, when I think about it, it, it's simply amazing. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do for the youth and families that we serve. We're trying to help them have the freedom to dream, have the freedom to, you know, take care of themselves, in, in, not only in a Western sense, but also in a cultural sense. And those are all things that she gave to me. If I think about my own life, and really think about it, I could have used a friend. I was the, you know, my parents were teenagers. I was raised by my grandmother, not my biological parents. We didn't have the most money, but she was my friend. Oh, wow. All right. You mentioned before about the Obama Foundation work, values-based curriculum. What, tell me more about that. That sounds interesting. Sure. So the foundation itself, um, you know, has some really great core values. Like you said, the whole intent of the Obama leaders is to really um, empower people and provide us with the resources that we need to grow our own leadership. Um, but some of the first sessions have been really great and just making us be both reflective and introspective about our own values and to talk those through with other people and to take on scenarios where maybe two of our values are at odds and what do we do then? The kinds of things that we don't get to pause and think about, this is a space where we get to have those conversations with like-minded folks um, and some that aren't like-minded and really take um, you know, all of that exchange and move forward in whatever way we need to given our different trajectories. Yeah. Our own values. I often think about other people's desires being in conflict, but often there is that cognitive dissonance that we have with ourselves. Um, that's fascinating. How do you make time for this in your life to do this work? Because that's, you got to slow down for that. <laughs> There's no slowing down in my life. Yeah. Um, I'm getting married in a couple of weeks. Oh, well, congratulations. Right? So, planning a wedding. I have two daughters and two nieces at home, and I'm traveling constantly, but I really chose this. There was an intentionality about this as well in my commitment to myself and my growth. You know, one thing that I always say in my prayers and think about is that. Every day when I wake up, I want to be a better person than I was the day before, um, even if incrementally, right? And yeah. so this is part of me building into myself. A lot of times I, I do a lot of other things as well for free and, and, and contracting. But this was something where I was investing in me and, and you know, that investment is going to ripple into the future. So I just make the time. My um, staff and CEO has been super supportive. It's it's probably about four hours a week. So that's a huge chunk of my time. Yeah. Um, but it is so worth it. I am so blessed to have this opportunity. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about 
um, you said you never really had an executive leadership coach, but yet from my perspective, you know, you, you could be that coach. So stepping aside and being humble about what you already know and have a track record in, but yet learning the next thing, how are you navigating that? I, the the coaching that we're getting is very like the curriculum is amazing. It's actually the founder is originally from the Rapid City area, which oh, I thought wow. was yeah like small world. Yeah. Um, but small world, big city, right? right? Big impact here in Rapid for here sure. in the Black Hills. Yeah. Um, so it, it is a well laid out platform. Really encourages you not only to think about what your goals are, but how you're going to get there to prioritize them. And then there's the human aspect. I think I just they, you match yourself with a coach, and I just made a really great match. Um, she even has said, you know, I see myself in you. Um, you know, many years ago. So it, it, it's been really great. Yeah. How can the rest of us engage in, you know, being a friend to children, being a mentor to others, seeking out mentorship when we need it, um, people who are not part of Obama leaders, but who are hearing you today and are inspired to do the next big thing or ask the next hard question? Um, what would some of your early advice to, to people be who are listening today? Sure. I think that we all have roles and responsibilities within our communities, and we get to determine what we want to do and how far we want to lean in. I will say that our local chapter is hiring for friends right now, um, so I would definitely encourage people who are interested in being a paid professional mentor um, because that's their, their full-time job is the working with children and, and helping to support them and their families. Um, so they're hiring. I think the other thing that we find, particularly in Indian country and in here in the Hesapa chapter, is that we don't have a lot of philanthropic dollars um, rurally, right? And this is still considered pretty rural. And so, you know, even small donations help in the ways that we're able to impact youth and families moving forward. Um, because I always tell people when I come into a new community or work with a chapter that's existing, we are only limited by our imagination and funding. <laughs> so just those two things. Um, and then, of course, just I think in our individual lives, I, I still have mentors that I look too. I do try to lean back and mentor others. I was talking to a mentee this morning. And um, that's, I think a lot of us are doing that informally as an, and as unpaid, but as being good relatives. So I would encourage you to do that. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask, what does it mean to be a good relative? But I think that you've been doing nothing but answering that in your words and in your life work as well. So, yeah. I mean, Tasha Friday, um, first cohort of 100 change makers partaking in the Obama Foundation's Leaders USA program. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you again as this work develops and you apply it in different ways in your life. And uh, but not until after you get married, because <laughs> <laughs> you got to focus. Because right. I focus on so much. Tasha, thank you for stopping by today. We really appreciate it. Oh well, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share. Yeah. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. At the annual Arts Collective, more than 80 local artists will gather to share their creativity and showcase their work. That's taking place in the Visual Arts Center of the Washington Pavilion today, tomorrow from 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. local time. 
And that event is an opportunity to view and support and visit with local artisans. Janet Anderson is the lead curator of the Visual Arts Center at the Washington Pavilion in Sioux Falls. And I'm here in Rapid City, but she is in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls for our conversation. Jana, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me. Uh, for people who don't know much about the Visual Arts Center and its mission as a whole, start there and tell us a little bit about this place inside the Washington Pavilion, which a lot of people think about as, you know, that's where the symphony concert is or that's where the Broadway show is. But there is this whole beautiful Visual Arts Center as well. Tell us about it. Yeah, the Visual Arts Center is a really big part of the Washington Pavilion, but the Washington Pavilion as a whole has so many opportunities from science to performance to the visual arts. Um, the Visual Arts Center is on the north side of the building in downtown Sioux Falls. We have eight galleries that have a rotating content of shows uh, from local artists to regional artists to international artists. Uh, there's always something new happening in there, and this place is really a wonderful resource for artists and the public community as a whole. All right. Now, that can be the Guild Hall, which mm -hmm. was a big traveling exhibit where there were not local artists, but then when you walk in the multiple galleries, galleries you see lots of local artists. Tell yes. us about this event now, because it's even more. Yes. <laughs> it's like local artists on steroids, they're all here. Yeah, so typically the, the galleries are filled with exhibitions that last four to six months, uh, with, with exhibitions, solo shows or group shows that have been curated by uh, myself and our team. Um, uh, as well as traveling ex exhibits that we source, like the Guildhall exhibit, which was such a huge success. Um, but right now, so the Everest Gallery is our biggest gallery. There's uh, 5,000 square feet. It's where the Guildhall exhibition was, but it looks a little different. Uh, there's um, so many artists setting up right now. The event starts at 1 o'clock today. Uh, they're setting up right now, um, and each of them have their own displays from uh, from rugs to jewelry to fine art, sculpture and ceramics, photography. There's something for everybody there, and it really is a, a, a community-driven event that is bringing the whole of the arts community together to sell their work, show their work in a really elevated space, um, and, and have conversation with uh, the public as well as other makers. So was this, this is not the first year. I think I went to this event last year. Yeah, so actually, was that? Okay. yeah, so, so this is the second time we've hosted the event in the Visual Arts Center. Okay. The first time was in December of 2022, um, okay. and it went really, really well. But, uh, however, the event has been going on since 2009 in Sioux Falls, okay. um, started by a really wonderful artist and uh, a dear friend, actually, M. Wynn. Uh, she started it with just 15 artists in Lucky's Bar in downtown Sioux oh. Falls. And she really was trying to create a space for artists to come together and to be able to have maybe their first ever show um, of their work. But by uh, collaborating with other creators and being together in a space, you can really get more viewers and more eyes on your work. Uh, so she's been doing this for a long time and has grown out of multiple spaces and up until last year when we offered our gallery space um, to be that next level of let's bring more people and let's get more artists involved and create a bigger community. All right. So what is the arts community like in Sioux Falls now in that region? 
there's more than enough people. I mean, 80 local artists, yeah. and that's not everybody. So <laughs> don't tell not, us a little bit about the, the community right now. Yeah, it's it's not everybody, but it's a really good portion of artists. Um, yeah. Those 80 people are, it's eclectic. There is a wide range of uh, skill sets and talents and and goals and content with their work um, that you know individually as artists uh, I am a curator but I'm also an artist myself uh, it's it's a lot of work to put yourself out there so uh, to to have this space where the eclectic group can all come together and be accepted and welcomed into this uh, various variety of a show is is a really great opportunity. Tell me a little bit about the the synchronicity or the serendipity of meeting other artists. You know, here's somebody at the booth next to you. You mm -hmm. you know, you take a break from your booth, you walk around, and all of a sudden you you know bump into someone who ends up being your next collaborator. You yeah. know, we're we're gonna do work together now. How do you set that up for uh, success and then mm -hmm. watch it unfold? Yeah, it's it's really beautiful, actually. I was um, there last night while a lot of the artists were getting all set up. And the conversations that you overhear as people are walking around and getting set up from, wow, that looks new. I didn't know you did that. Or how did you do that? Um, why are you doing that? Like the, the questions and conversations mm -hmm. between different artists and and meeting new people that are um, interested in similar methods, materials, interests. It really is wonderful to watch just between the artists themselves. And today, once the event starts, that interaction will only continue with the public as people come in. It's a free event um, to come and talk to the artists themselves and not just and see the faces behind the objects that you're purchasing. Um, and it, it's a really wonderful thing to watch. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm talking with Jana Anderson. She's lead curator of the Visual Arts Center at the Washington Pavilion in Sioux Falls. And we're kind of previewing the annual art collective at the Washington Pavilion. And Jana, if you're coming, if you're not an artist and you're mm -hmm. coming, you're going to have a cocktail, you're going to look around, mm -hmm. maybe buy a few things. Is there a way to approach, especially I'm asking you as an artist, mm -hmm. is there a way to approach a booth in someone's art in a way that kind of helps you figure out who this artist is and how their work, you know, because you're going to make some decisions about what you're mm -hmm. going to bring home with you. Oh, that's, um, a, that's a great question. Yeah. Help walk us through that. Yeah. Um, as a um, just a, a person and an artist myself, I would say start with curiosity. Uh, you're engaging with someone that you maybe have never met before. Um, maybe you don't know what it is that they are working on or making or why they do what they do. Um, just engaging with those artists. Um, it, some people are shy, some people aren't, but some people are much more willing to talk about their work and some need a little uh, coaching. But if you start with curiosity, I think that's the best way to go about engaging with artists. Yeah, I would plan on, I would add, plan on buying something. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Like, the price ranges, the price ranges yeah. are all over the place, too, and there really is something for everybody. All right, so admission is free, though. Yes. Yep. Okay, so mm -hmm. I would just say you're going to probably find something that is for every budget, but you're probably going to find something that you want to take home. Because oh, absolutely. this was the thing that surprised me because um, I went without expectations and just the, like you said, there's jewelry, there's a postcard, there's a magnet, there's mm -hmm. huge pieces of original art. Mm -hmm. um, there's just a lot of fascinating stuff happening right now in, in the art community. Absolutely. Coming off of a, coming off of a pandemic mm -hmm. when these artists' lives changed uh, 
like all of ours did. Yeah, and thinking about that, you know, as as we go through uh, this new world in the last few years, uh, any time that we're bringing a big group of people together, it feels special, maybe more special yeah. than it did a few years ago. So uh, coming together and sharing ideas and conversation, as well as sharing your work, uh, that is also a vulnerable experience to be exposing the work that you make in your private art studio. Um, and and a chance to, to be seen. Yeah. All right, artists, step outside and show us what you got. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it's a safe place, and uh, we love to see what they put forward. Janet Anderson with the Visual Arts Center at the Washington Pavilion. We thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. And once again, that annual art collective is um, today and tomorrow, 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. local time. We'll put some links up on our website as well. It's the future of AM radio. It's the 50th anniversary reissue of an album during this year's Record Store Day that celebrates pop music's first psychedelic era. And it's a listen to new music arriving on the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. Larry Rohr talks with David Hersrud for this installment of Fresh Tracks. This first topic about AM radio and car dealers and car makers, man, that's right down route one for you. BMW, Tesla, Volkswagen have removed or planning to remove AM radio from some of their electric models. Ford, at least from what I've been able to gather, is rumored to be removing AM radio from all future models, electric or gas. I'm having an issue with it because the companies say that people's tastes have changed, you know, they're going to streaming and satellite radio. They also say that electromagnetic interference from the engine interferes with AM radio frequencies, making it sound kind of staticky. Do you think the research is there to support this move, or is it potentially a corporate move to shift culture? I think in some cases car companies will make decisions based strictly on the bottom line. Having been a car dealer for you know, over 40 years, there are times when I, I simply, <laughs> very honestly, don't trust them. The biggest issue for me is AM radio delivers emergency weather alerts. And I don't think we're in a particular situation right now, considering what's happening uh, weather-wise around the globe, that we can afford to be without those. Sometimes those warnings and things are passed along through cell coverage, but go ahead and tell me how great cell coverage is in South Dakota. I know it's improved, but man, there's a lot of people, a lot of places with no bars. AM radio, that was my window on the music world growing up as a kid. Oh yeah. I can remember cruising Main Street in Lemon, South Dakota. At night, we listening to KOMA in Oklahoma City, KAAY in Little Rock, Arkansas, with uh, Beaker Street, hosted by Clyde Clifford. Mm. Who's the decision maker here? Is there, is there a democracy in this at all? Well, I think, and at least I'm hoping, that the federal government is going to put enough pressure on the car manufacturers to leave AM radio alone. I think there's too many important issues that need to be addressed one thing I wanted to bring up, the 50th anniversary edition 
of nuggets, original artifacts from the first psychedelic era, 1965 to 1968. How would you define psychedelic in that era? I think you could probably define it a little bit more by bands like the 13th floor elevators. Bands that were just a, a little bit different were experimenting. People wearing tie-dyed shirts and bell-bottom pants. It was a reaction. I mean, you take a look at growing up in the 50s listening to the Bobby Darins and the Frankie Avalons, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you had the 13th floor elevators, the music machine, bands like that that were just going against the grain. This was a time when music was, there was substantial and unprecedented growth. And you had bands that were, didn't want to play the same thing that, you know, the Dave Clark Five or the Beatles or Jerry and the Pacemakers were playing. There was a whole different atmosphere. And it led to the experimentation and people going off in different directions. And you take a look at the changes that have happened over the past 50 years, a lot of it began with these bands. And I'm sure you know some bands that came out of the East Coast. Liar Liar, remember that song by the oh, Castaways? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's where that organ influence came in and Psychedelic had something to do with instrument exploration. And then a little bit of soul, not only instrumentation, but rhythm driven by a group called the Music Explosion. Now when you're feeling low and the fish won't bite, you need a little bit of soul to put you right. Of many of the groups that are identified, the term one hit wonder came to mind, and I know that's not completely the case, this experimentalism just didn't get the same traction and longevity as what some of the other popular groups were doing? People started listening to music that was coming from all over the country. And if a band didn't have, I mean, they had a dynamite first signal, but if they didn't have something after that, people moved on. Okay. What was the next big thing? There's another important anniversary and some new music dimension too, the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And I was around working for Atlantic Records, which is one of the first hip-hop labels, uh, major labels. Personally, I don't like birthdays, even my own. <laughs> but 50 years ago, I think if you had predicted that this birthday would happen, uh, you would have been told to increase your medication. I like lipstick on my neck. You let me know I'm your number one select. I like lipstick on my neck. I don't think it, anybody anticipated hip-hop becoming as big as it is and having the influence that it does. It basically started in New York. People doing, playing music, spinning records, that's where it began. This is more DJ-driven. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I thought it, it would be really important to sign off with one of my favorite new songs, Chanel Monet, who is one of my favorite artists, and a song called Lipstick lover.
Okay, keep track of your AM radio. Talk to your car dealer or car manufacturer if you have, want to weigh in on that, maybe even the Federal Communications Commission. Get back to the tie-dye. Huh? Try a little psychedelic <laughs> with the original Artifacts. It's a, it's a Nuggets album celebrating the psychedelic era and the beat of Janelle Monet. David Hersrud. Thanks, David. Hey, thank you. Good listening. If you enjoy fresh tracks, find the full conversations on our website, sdpb.org slash music. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on Mondays in the Moment. Matt Wiesner brings you a new installment of Summer with the Symphony. It's time for Mozart's Requiem. Also next week, we've got a lot of great conversations coming up for you, including about what it takes to create a grid, new ways of thinking about energy, new challenges, and new obstacles. In the Moment is produced by Ari Youngman and Ellen Kester. Our engineer is Colton Nicholson. Jordan Henderson is our videographer. This week, we are particularly grateful for the support of SDPB's Rapid City crew. Thank you for welcoming the show to the Black Hills. I am your host, Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>